welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie. And this is a combination episode titled Dark Age Diets. We're combining five cultural episodes into a single episode on this one. So we're going to be handling drinks, alcohol, veggies, meat, and hunting. I hope you enjoy it. So let's talk briefly about last episode. Listener Howard raised an issue on the forums regarding what I said, which I think deserves a little attention. As you know, much of this period is subject to debate, and here's a great example. Last week, I attributed Baden Hill to Ambrosius. I did that because Gildas wrote about Baden Hill in the sentence immediately following his uncharacteristic description of Ambrosius. However, Howard was right to point out several things. First, is that Gildas didn't directly mention that Ambrosius was involved in the battle. Second, that if Gildas was right in his timeline, Ambrosius would have been quite old if he fought at Baden Hill. And third, that Baden Hill might have been led by an unnamed Briton, since Gildas was rather focused upon the sins of his own people and might have been reluctant to name a heroic Briton. In fact, he only mentions the names of Britons when he's insulting them. So the tie between Ambrosius and Baden Hill isn't absolute. There are cracks there, and they deserve some looking at. Furthermore, three centuries later, a man named Arthur would be connected to that battle in the Historia of Britannum. Now personally, I'm inclined to think that Gildas wouldn't have taken the time to discuss Ambrosius, going so far as to include his lineage, unless it was for a reason. The sentence in which he was mentioned lacks any specific battles against the Saxons, just that he was victorious. And it is in the following sentence, which is sometimes separated by a line break, but other times it isn't, depending on which version you're reading, that Gildas mentions that the war waxed and waned and finally reached a conclusion at Baden Hill, where the Saxons were defeated. Now it seems to me that those two statements were connected, and that this was the last battle for the old bear. But Howard's points are absolutely valid, and as I said earlier in the show, reasonable people can disagree on just about everything from this period. That's what makes it fun. And Gildas was compressing a decades-long war into just a few lines, so maybe he was glossing over it and skipped mentioning the commander of Baden Hill because he wanted to get on with talking about how such-and-such's mom was a dirty, dirty girl and how the Britons got everything they deserved because they lacked moral purity. And frankly... That is a very real possibility. So for the sake of clarity, let me try and correct the record. We just can't be absolutely certain who commanded the battle at Baden Hill. Gildas wrote about it immediately following his description of Ambrosius, but he failed to mention if Ambrosius or someone else was commanding the battle. Thus, he left it somewhat as an open question. And then over 300 years later, in the works attributed to Nennius, it was written that Arthur commanded that battle. And it was from that work that we see the birth of the legend, including his 12 famous battles. So as far as Arthur goes, we're talking about the granddaddy of the source materials. And in that respect, it deserves quite a bit of attention. But we should remember that a lot of time has passed between the events at Baden Hill and the writing of the Historia Britannum. And that passage of time should be taken into account when we weigh this material. Furthermore, There are some rather glaring and provable errors in the Historia, so we can't read it as 100% fact. Rather, we should remember that it is a Dark Age source and potentially a record of local oral histories, and thus it's probably coming to us with all the challenges that those two factors tend to bring with them. However, like I've said many times in the past, oral histories shouldn't be immediately discounted. 
Oral cultures tend to be rather gifted at memorization as well as storytelling, especially when compared to written cultures such as our own. So might there be some truth in the Historia Britannum? And might there be some truth about Arthur in there? It's certainly possible, and it's something you should definitely consider when weighing everything. So in the end, I cannot tell you absolutely who commanded Baden Hill. I can't even tell you with 100% certainty whether there was a battle at Baden Hill, though I do suspect there was. So it's up to you, as the listener, to draw your own conclusions on this. Ultimately, when we deal with this period, sources just aren't very clear or reliable on who did what and when. And so that's going to have an impact on the story that I'm telling. And as you've probably gathered by now, what I like to do is tell stories. And to do that, I generally need characters. I need real three-dimensional people. I need Cartamandua and Venutius. But in this era, at least for a while, we aren't given much to go on. But that doesn't mean that the stories are lost or that we can't learn about the people. The Romans were really big on the great man approach to history. Frankly, much of history is big on that approach. The short explanation of what the great man approach is, is look at this one fellow over here and look at how much he did to change the world. It's typically focused on males, and it's also typically focused upon the aristocracy. But there's a whole world of people out there, and not all of them are rich male nobles. So I've got an idea of how to deal with telling this story until we get to the more concrete characters in history. Why don't we talk about the culture and what life was like for the people? If I can't find characters to make three-dimensional, I'll make the culture three-dimensional. It won't have a main character, nor will it be part of a three-act play but it will definitely be a clear story, and I think it'll make this stuff much more real for us. So let's give this a shot. So when we left off, we were discussing legends of how England went from Romano-British to Germanic. We discussed the archeological digs that we found that support the presence of this Germanic shift in culture, and I didn't mention this last week, but there's also evidence that the Anglo-Saxons didn't oust all of the Britons, but rather integrated with them. So we have the arrival of unknown numbers of Anglo-Saxons, probably. And then we have a provable cultural shift in England. So let's talk about the culture that they brought with them. And to start with, let's talk about a major influence on nearly all cultures. Alcohol. Alcohol was pretty big, and not just because the Anglo-Saxons rather enjoyed being jolly, but because in general, no one wanted to drink the water. And considering that most of these drinks involved water, or at the very least involved adding water, I think it would be useful to discuss what water was like for these people. Water in Anglo-Saxon life had an odd dichotomy to it. On the one hand, water was fairly dangerous, given pathogens and contaminants. I mean, they didn't know exactly why some water would make them sick, but they knew the water would make them sick. And actually, there are a number of antidotes for drinking bad water, including what to do when you accidentally swallow, quote, some creeping thing, end quote, when you are drinking some water. Apparently, what you need to do in that situation is drink the hot blood of a sheep immediately. That's some advanced level chupacabra medicine right there. But getting past the strangeness of drinking hot sheep's blood, let's talk about how you'd end up with a creeping thing in your glass. I mean, when you think about it, how would you accidentally swallow a creeping thing? The water must have been as murky as all get out. And actually, what would have been an even bigger problem were the unseen creeping things, the microscopic creepy crawlies, such as bacteria. This would have been an enormous problem, 
and especially in the more densely settled areas where the water sources were alarmingly close to sewage pits. Consequently, waterborne illnesses like cholera were probably common amongst those who drank a great deal of water. So it's probably not too surprising that water was seen as the lowest of the low when it came to beverages. But on the other hand, large quantities of water were needed for the production of a wide variety of foods and drinks, including ale. So for that reason, we also see evidence of wetmongers, basically watermongers. And these people would sell water from a good source, of course for a premium, and that would have been key for the production of a large number of drinks and dishes. And we can see the importance of water in the laws of Wales from the period of time we're talking about. Those laws stated that every habitation should have a path to a good spring. It's basically an early attempt at urban development. Now when we talk about water sources for these Anglo-Saxons and Welshmen and everybody, what we're probably thinking about are springs and rivers and lakes, right? But archaeological digs have shown that actually wells were used pretty early on, even when a settlement was located next to a river. And actually, well is an Anglo-Saxon word. Though it should be noted that when we read the word well in a written source, depending on the source, it can also act as a synonym for pool, spring, fountain, rivulet, brook, and sometimes an actual well. And actually, it was also used in that fashion for place names. So you have Bernawell, which translates to Bjorna's spring. But that wasn't always the case. Sometimes the word well was just used to describe what we think of as a well. And there is archaeology to support that. And like I said, sometimes there would be another water source nearby, such as a river. And yet they were still using the well. Digging a well when a water source was in walking distance might seem odd. But the well might have been seen as healthier, or at the very least cleaner, than the river. So that's a possible answer to that question. Now these wells were lined with timber, usually oak, hazel, willow, or dogwood. And maybe it's just a coincidence, but several of those woods sound rather familiar to me. You might recall that we spoke about them earlier when we were talking about Druidism in the Members Only podcast. Now when we think of wells, we typically think of a pump well or one of those charming barrel wells that use a windlass. But at this point in history, windlasses weren't around yet, and access to the water might have been rather more taxing. And we've seen evidence that they might have even gotten access via a series of steps or a ladder. Now maybe in later Anglo-Saxon times, windlasses or well poles were used, but we don't really have any archaeological evidence proving it. Simply digging a well doesn't mean that you're going to get good water, though. If you have a well in an area with a lot of chalk in the ground, you might be fortunate to have clear water. Otherwise, there's a good chance you'd be dealing with water that was at least a little muddy. And it seems that this was dealt with through the use of cisterns, because no one wants to drink muddy water. So what they do is they put the water into the cistern and allow the mud to settle on the bottom. But this was hardly an ideal solution, and it could have given rise to all sorts of, well, creeping things. So ideally, if you want water for your little town, what you really want is spring water. That's because springs were highly regarded. We can deduce that by how common it was that springs would allegedly appear at the site where martyrs were slain. It seems that springs were assumed to be clean and pure, whereas streams and rivers, which could have human and animal waste in them, were not very well trusted. 
and there's a good chance that the Anglo-Saxons knew that springs tapped into underground water. After all, the Romans knew of this, and not all of that knowledge disappeared. And also, it's just a small jump from the Latin word fontana to the Anglo-Saxon word funta. So, you know, maybe there's a connection. So basically what you really want is a spring. But if you weren't lucky enough to have a home next to a spring, maybe you could just get a saint to help you out. There was a story about St. Cuthbert who had a pit dug in his house, and out of that pit came forth a spring with sweet water that, after being blessed, tasted like wine. It's a handy superpower to have. And interestingly, water is one of the many places that we see an intersection between Anglo-Saxon life and the ancient culture of Britannia. Water was immensely important to the ancient Britons, of course, but all throughout the Anglo-Saxon times, we still see reverence to certain sacred waters, even though waters seem to be generally disregarded and seen as low class and dangerous. For example, the water from the spot where King Oswald was killed was reported to have cured a great number of people. But it wasn't just new Anglo-Saxon sacred sites that were utilized, but also old pre-Saxon sites. And this was maintained regardless of which religion was dominant in the land at the time. The wells that were considered sacred all the way back to pagan times continued to have that reputation through the dominance of the period where we were worshipping Thor and on into the Christian times. They were just rebranded. However, the church was generally against the use of wells until a saint had blessed them. They needed to have their stamp of approval on them. And in fact, it seems that at one point, every Christian priest was instructed to forbid well-worshipping and necromancy. I don't know if we were having problems with zombies, but apparently necromancy was a problem. But in general, water was still a shunned beverage, and it was even used as a punishment drink. For example, let him only have bread and water. That sort of thing. Now, there were ascetics later on in Anglo-Saxon history, and they focused upon its low standing and would only drink water. But that's just kind of how ascetics roll. So basically, we don't want to drink water. It's low class, it might have creeping things in them, and if it doesn't have a creeping thing, it still might give you cholera. So it's just kind of bad news. So what are we going to drink? Well, alcohol. And we have four common fermented drinks commonly found in Anglo-Saxon culture. Wine, beer, mead, and ale. And I should point out that ale and beer were not synonymous for the Anglo-Saxons as they are today. They were treated as two entirely different drinks, and as such, I'm going to discuss them separately. Now, there were other drinks that were less common, but those were the big four. And actually, wine, beer, mead, and ale were generally viewed in that order. So let's start with wine. Wine was the most prestigious, given the difficulty of acquiring it. The grapes would only be available for short periods of the year, and otherwise, it might have needed to be imported. You might remember from earlier podcasts that, for a period of time, vineyards were able to be planted as far north as Yorkshire due to climate change. Well, even during those very warm periods of British history, wine was renowned for being awful. By the time Bede was writing, there were still vineyards in Britain, and when we get to the Doomsday Book, we'll see that vineyards are mentioned 38 times, so we can be relatively certain that Britain was still making wine. Was it still as bad as the Romans said it was, though? Well, they were probably still dealing with the same soil, and also probably the same vines, though certainly a great deal older. So in that respect, it probably was as bad. But more important than the vines and the soil was the weather. 
the weather would have a huge impact upon the wine, especially when we consider the Anglo-Saxon palate. You'll note as we get further into all of this that the Anglo-Saxons had something of a sweet tooth when it came to alcohol. So they would have liked sweeter wine, and unfortunately the wine that they would have tried to make themselves would have been rather dry. Think of it this way, when you eat grapes that were picked too soon, how do they taste? They're tart and bitter, right? But that's because they aren't ripe yet, and consequently the sugar concentration is pretty low in the grape. So to have a good sweet grape, one that's nice and sugary, you need to pick it after it's fully ripened. Well, to get a good sweet wine, and actually to get a high alcohol content, you're going to want grapes that have a solid amount of sugar in them. Basically, very well ripened grapes. And that's why wine grapes are typically delicious, because they have plenty of sugars in them for the yeast to feed on. Well, the problem for the Anglo-Saxons is that the British grapes probably weren't able to ripen fully because of the weather, and as such, the wine the Anglo-Saxons might have been trying to make would have probably been really dry until there was another warming phase in the 9th century. Does that make sense? This could explain why the Anglo-Saxons typically used wine as a base for other drinks or would add flavors to it. But, on the other hand, they might have just been doing that for fashion. For example, we drink sangria because we like it, not because our wine is so awful that it needs fruit. But anyway, the point is that Britain wasn't an ideal location for wine country. And the harvest for producing wine would have been quite narrow and produced rather dry and unsatisfying wine. And that meant that wine might have needed to have been imported. And of course, Importation had its own political and logistical problems, depending on the period of time we're talking about. Consequently, only the most wealthy and powerful would have been drinking wine regularly. Now at the time, wine was thought to have had medicinal values, and was also thought to have aided in digestion. So of course, it was a medicine that was only typically available to the privileged members of society. Sometimes wine would be heated or combined with herbs such as fennel or mint and that was seen as providing some sort of medicinal benefit. Although as good as wine was for medicine, it was generally to be avoided by people with fevers. And I suppose that makes sense. The last thing you want is a feverish drunk in your cottage. But in general, wine was something that only the most wealthy and powerful enjoyed. Of course, once Christianity spread, the masses would get the opportunity to have a little taste of wine at mass. But in general, wine was an aristocratic drink. And actually, it's a prejudice that continues to this day, despite the prevalence and complexity that can be found in craft beers. So, if you can't afford wine, but still have a bit of coin on you, what do you have then? Well, you probably have beer. Beer was originally called bear, and might have been derived from the word for barley. It was a relatively strong drink, and the yeast used in beer probably continued working until it reached around 18% alcohol, which would have made it a pretty big kick, at least much bigger than ale, which would have topped out at 12-14%, to 14%, usually a great deal less. Beer was also probably quite sweet. Sweeter than wine, in fact. We see references to ales and wine and milk being sweetened throughout the various sources available, but there's only a single reference to beer being sweetened. So it must have been really sweet. The thing about beer is that in literary accounts, it doesn't seem to be a specific descriptor, but rather a synonym for a strong drink. Some scholars have argued that actually beer was a fermented cider, a strongly fermented cider. Maybe the term bear was related to bjor. Bjor was a strong and sweet Danish drink that was enjoyed by the Vikings. Furthermore, the term bear, and I'm probably mispronouncing that, 
is a term used in Normandy for cider. And considering the fact that cider was noticeably absent from the list of Anglo-Saxon drinks given to us by Henry of Huntington, it's possible that beer and cider were the same thing. And given the fact that I absolutely love Scrumpy, and I think it's crazy that any cultures would have missed out on the opportunity to make it, I'm a rather big fan of this cider theory. So maybe that's what it was. But let's imagine that you can't afford beer, cider, whatever it was, but you still want to get your drink on. What else was there? Well, the next rung down was mead. And oh boy, is this drink old. In fact, the word for mead appears to be derivative from the Sanskrit word for honey. It's that old. It was also something of a heroic drink. Mead was the drink used to repay warriors, and it was also the drink of choice for many royal feasts. Mead was the go-to drink. So what is mead? Well, it's fermented honey. And the neat thing about it is you don't need a lot of equipment to make it, especially when compared with ale or cider. And because it's so easy to make, it was the common drink of the masses. According to Tickner Edwards, to make mead, the people would just crush honeycombs and steep them in water. Then they'd strain the liquid and let it stand. The longer they left it, the stronger it got. That was it. Now sometimes pure honey would be used, and herbs such as sweet gale would be added for flavor, but in general, that's all they had to do to make mead. Just stick it in water, crush it, strain it, and then let it sit. Was it sanitary? No. Was it easy? Yes. So chances are a lot of people were drinking mead. But what if you can't afford mead, but you still find the water more than a little bit questionable, not to mention rather foul? Well, what then? Well, then you have a true working class drink. Ale. The drink of last resort, unless you count water. Take Alefric's Colloquy as an example. And please forgive my pronunciation here. Elu gifik hob, op water gifik nob elu. Translates to ale if I have it, water if I have no ale. Ale at its most basic level is just liquor fermented from barley or wheat. As you know, I live in Portland, and here we have more craft breweries than pretty much anywhere else in the world. It's sort of beervana here, and we're rather in love with our beer culture. But when you strip away all the frills, all the sour beers and odd craft beers that we have, all the different methods and flavors, what you're left with is an alcohol produced from fermented wheat or barley. And actually, records of Germanic tribes drinking this stuff goes back to at least Tacitus. So it's a very old drink for the Anglo-Saxons. They have a long tradition of enjoying ale. And a major component of making this drink is the malt. Our word for malt comes from the Anglo-Saxon word for malting grains. I know, you're shocked, right? So the basic idea of malting is to break down the starches into simple sugars. You want to do this because the sugars are what the yeast will be feeding upon. And here's a fun fact. In addition to being easier to break down, it also provides more nutritious substances than the raw grain. Basically, if you had malt in your diet, you'd probably be healthier than your contemporaries who were eating unmalted grains. So malting was a really good thing in general, and if you were living in this era, you'd probably want to be doing it. So how was it done? Well, malting back then was rather different than what we do today, but here's the basic breakdown of how they would have done it. The grain would be left to steep in water for three days. See how prevalent the water, and hopefully not the creeping things, were in making these drinks? So they'd steep it in water, leave it for three days, and then they'd drain it for a day. 
Afterwards, they pile it into a heap and leave it for three more days. It would begin to sprout at that point, so they'd spread it thinly over the malting floor and turn it over two or three times a day for about two weeks. After that, it's now become malt. And then they would dry it gently over a fire. Usually they'd use straw in a kiln. They'd rub it clean, winnow it, and following that, the grains would be ground and then it would be ready for brewing. And now you've got your malt. So now what? Well, you'd want water, and as we've discussed, water was more than a little dodgy, and even today, the quality of the water can have a big impact on your ale. So fast-moving springs and whitewater rivers were preferred, but some living wells were also acceptable. So the ground malt was placed in a mash tun, and mixed in with it were three parts boiling water and one part cold water. That way you get it to about the right temperature, apparently. The sad fact of this is that we don't know how much grain was used in this process, but the way it tends to break down is the more malt you use, the stronger the alcohol content you're going to have. And considering that the Anglo-Saxons had a sweet tooth, they might have also added honey in addition to the grain to both boost the alcohol content and also make it taste a little bit better. But ultimately, we just don't know how much grain they used. So the mixture was stirred and left to stand for three days. During this process, the starch and the malt would be converted into sugar so the yeast could feed upon it. After the three days have passed, they'll strain it out and take the liquid. And now this liquid is known as the wort. It's derived from the Anglo-Saxon word for the same thing, wort. And here's where things get even less sanitary. They would use a branch from a bush to stir the wort. The bush became the symbol for alehouses, in fact. Now, they didn't really know about yeasts and didn't understand the science of brewing, but using a bush for stirring was actually somewhat clever. To start with, that branch probably had some natural yeasts on it, but over time, the use of it in the brew house would have resulted in a branch that would have been heavily colonized by the natural yeasts that are needed to ferment the ale. So the brews from older brewers were probably better than those of the newer brewers based on the simple availability of yeasts. The two brewers could have been doing exactly the same thing, but the presence of that special branch and probably having the brew house being entirely colonized by friendly yeasts that you want would have given a better brew to the older brewers than the new ones. Makes sense. So by leaving the wort to sit uncovered, awesome, uh, as well as using the branch to stir it, they would have added natural yeasts to the wort, and now they just need to let it do its job. The yeast would now digest those simple sugars and produce alcohol, which was sort of the whole point of this exercise. And from our modern perspective, what they really wanted to do is have the production of alcohol outpace the growth of bacteria, so that way they could, you know, drink it and not die. So the yeast used would have been a top fermenting type and probably would only have kept going for about three days before halting, provided that the temperature stayed at between 58 and 68 degrees Fahrenheit. After that, the ale would have been cleared and put into barrels. Additives might have been added in the process to help preserve the ale and also kill off the yeast. You want to kill off the yeast, otherwise it'll make the ale sour. One additive that we still use today is hops. Hops made the ale last and also made it taste much better. And if hops were being used, they would have been boiled in with the wort for about an hour before draining. Hops were certainly used by the Vikings, and we have references that date back to the 12th century of hops being used for preservation of ale. And we know that, at least in Kent, some people paid rent in hops rather than in coin. 
Not only that, but we found pollen grains that imply that hops might have been grown in Norfolk during earlier Saxon times. Furthermore, we have evidence of a 10th century boat in Gravney that had hops in its cargo. So hops, at least by the 900s, were at least present and maybe important. However, we can't be sure that hops were used in brewing for the early Saxon times. Consequently, they were left out of the BHP Anglo-Saxon ale experiment. But that isn't to say that hops were the only additive used, and some were used much earlier than the 900s. And these were typically herbs. And when herbs were added to the brew, they were known as a gruit. Some sample herbs would be bog myrtle, elderflower, yarrow, rosemary, heather, wormwood, but frankly there were probably many herbs that were used by early Anglo-Saxons when they were making their ales. And many of these have flavor characteristics that the Anglo-Saxons might have enjoyed, but in general the important task of the additives were to be preservatives and to kill any bacteria. Now the brewing of ale wasn't uniform by any means, not even by the same brewer. And it wouldn't just be because sometimes they use this additive and sometimes they use that additive. The flavor, the strength, all of that could change depending on the brewer, the ingredients available, and also on luck. Luck was a big deal. After all, you couldn't buy sterilized materials at the store back then, and there weren't any of the cool homebrewing sanitizers available. This meant that the brewers had to deal with things they didn't fully understand, like bacterial contamination and bad yeast. Before we get to bacteria, bad yeast is actually a very real thing. We were talking to one of the brewers over at Full Sail, and he was telling us of how they microscopically check their yeast for burrs to determine whether or not the yeast has gotten too old and has gone bad. And if they see the burrs, they get rid of it. Well, the Anglo-Saxons didn't have that advantage. I mean, clearly they didn't have a lab to use, and they had little knowledge of what would cause a batch to go sideways on them. And so they certainly wouldn't have known whether or not the yeast had gone bad until they brewed. And then you've got the whole issue of bacteria, and they have no idea what bacteria is. They just know that bad things will sometimes happen to batches. And they also know that sometimes people get sick, but they don't really understand what's going on. Consequently, it seems that some brewers resorted to superstitions and pagan practices in their brewing. Aelfric was particularly disturbed by this tendency, by the way. Though there were also Christian superstitions for brewing as well, such as the use of holy water and the wort. And then you have one of my favorite superstitions. If someone went and accidentally spilled ale, you'd have to place lupins all throughout the alehouse. I mean, think about that. If next time you have a party and someone spills a beer, instead of shouting party foul, you force them to go all around the house and place lupins. I can imagine after that they pay better attention to their beer. But anyway, they didn't fully understand bacteria. They certainly didn't understand whether or not yeast was good or bad or what would make it good or bad. And so consequently, it was a hit and miss operation in making ale. But in general, this is what we know of how they would have made ale. So there you have it. That's how the four big fermented drinks of Anglo-Saxon life were made, and also why you would have wanted to avoid water. Next time, we're going to talk about the culture that surrounded those drinks in an episode that I'm calling Dark Age Drunks. So when we last left off, we were talking about the sorts of things the Anglo-Saxons drank and roughly how they were made. So this week, let's talk about the culture that surrounds those beverages. But before I get going, you should probably understand that I'll be jumping around in time as I cover this subject. 
Our sources from this period are scarce, and while I'm going to do my best to put together a full picture of what the drinking culture might have looked like, we'll still be covering hundreds of years here, and I'll be moving back and forth through time to grab little tidbits of information to flesh things out. That means that while I'll do my best to make this as accurate as possible, we're still dealing with the Dark Ages, and we're also dealing with gaps that span hundreds of years. Could culture have changed during those years? Absolutely. But we're just going to have to do the best we can and talk about what we know and try and fill in the gaps as we go along. Now please feel free to send your complaints regarding the amount of speculation in this episode to I don't care at anyone who speaks in absolute truths from this period is probably lying to you.com. Now as you recall, water was to be avoided, and as we'll be discussing today, alcohol was more than a little prevalent in Anglo-Saxon society. But what about other non-alcoholic drinks? What if you were part of a Dark Ages temperance movement of some sort? Would you have any alternative to water? Well, we know there were cows in Britain, so what about milk? Well, milk wasn't overly common as a beverage on its own, though it was drank. For example, ascetics would drink it. But in general, it just wasn't too common, and that's probably because it was fairly dangerous as a beverage. This was before the days of Louis Pasteur, and as a result, there were all sorts of pathogens that might be living in that milk. So in general, if milk was to be used, it would be as a substitute for water in cooking. For example, when boiling is necessary, instead of using water, they might use milk. Fans of It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia might recall milk steak. It's kind of like that. But it was also used as a raw ingredient for making things such as butter and cheese. But as a beverage... Milk wasn't that common. So if we're avoiding water and we're avoiding milk, and there clearly isn't any soda available, what do we drink? Well, there were wort drinks, which were basically teas made with local flora and boiling water. Though we're obviously in the pre-colonization period, so there isn't any black tea available. They also might have added juices of various plants to the water they were drinking to make it more palatable or maybe give it some medicinal qualities. But in general, alcohol was pretty much the go-to drink. So if you were into the temperance movement back then, you were stuck with milk and water. And you were basically an ascetic. Good times. Alright, so when we last left off, we were talking about ale and malt. In fact, we spoke a bunch about them in the last episode. That's because they are pretty common in Anglo-Saxon life, and probably rather important. We know that in the late Anglo-Saxon era, both malt and ale were used in the payment of rents, as well as for gifts to monasteries. Sort of like, hey there, Brother Eifwald, you look thirsty, how about a couple barrels of ale? But generally, it features rather prominently in the payment of rent. Malt, mash, grist, ale, and Welsh ale all appeared in recorded rents. And it wasn't just the common people who were dealing with the payment of rent with alcohol. Bishop Cuthwolf leased land in Hereford for a cast of pure ale. And the Bishop of Winchester owed King Edward a food rent of 12 sesters of Welsh ale and 20 ambers of clear ale for his land. So this was common, and ale, and the material used to produce it, seems like it was all over the place. We even have references to it being used as a base for medicine. Using alcohol as a base for medicine makes sense, and that's beyond just drinking so much you're not really feeling any of your aches and pains anymore. It was also just much safer. Bacteria and creeping things typically don't last too long in alcohol, provided that it's strong enough. So by using alcohol as a base for your medicine, you're less likely to give your patient a bacterial infection that will kill him or her. It makes sense, right? 
Though there are some caveats, such as the fever I spoke about last week, or for pregnant ladies. No alcohol for pregnant ladies. So, um, good luck with that shifty water and questionable milk. So traditionally, wine would often be used as a base, but for the common people, it seems that ale would act as a substitute for wine. And there are some remedies that specifically call for ale, though there aren't nearly as many as those that call for wine. So ale isn't always a substitute, sometimes ale is just what's called for. And here's a fun fact, in the more urban areas, they would infuse herbs into their drinks for medicinal reasons. But in the country, there seems to be an older tradition of using flowers, fruits, leaves, and roots in their infusions. And there are scholars that suggest that that tradition might go back as far as the Iron Age. So that infused vodka you have in your freezer might have some rather ancient origins, though I suspect you're not doing it for medicinal reasons. And like I said, wine was typically used in those infusions in the more affluent areas, but it does seem that ale was a substitute for the less fortunate members of society. So ale was everywhere. But wait a minute, I can hear you asking. Why is ale rarely mentioned in Anglo-Saxon literary sources, such as the heroic poem Beowulf? If ale was so common that it was used even in the payment of rent, shouldn't it be ever present in the literature as well? Well, probably not. Beowulf and his men were heroes. If ale was the drink of the common man, it wouldn't have any place in a poem like that. So ale, despite the reviews from our Anglo-Saxon ale experiment, was very much a people's drink and was widely drank. And among the Anglo-Saxons, it was traditionally brewed by the women of the household. In modern times, it appears that home brewing is fairly male-dominated. Anytime I've gone to a brew store or talked about brewing with people, men outnumbered the women by a fairly large margin. That wasn't the case in Anglo-Saxon Britain. In fact, there are last names connected with brewing that carry the Anglo-Saxon feminine suffix, such as Brewster and Malster. Basically, a woman who brews or a woman who malts. Now, we aren't absolutely sure who was doing the brewing in Wales. There are plenty of references to Welsh sweet ale, and I've mentioned it several times in this episode, so the temptation is to assume that it must have been produced in Wales. But the truth of it is that Welsh sweet ale might have just been imported ale, since Welsh means foreign to the Anglo-Saxons. Incidentally, that's an incredibly dick move. They invade Britannia, then label the natives foreigners. Dick move. Anyway, so the term Welsh isn't exclusive to Wales. However, there aren't references to the importation of ale, so the odds are good that Welsh sweet ale was actually brewed in Wales, because as far as we can tell, no one was bringing ale across the channel. And actually, we're about as sure as we can be in this period that the Welsh were brewing at this point in time, because there are plenty of references and laws regarding ale, though we aren't sure who was doing the brewing in the household. It might have been the women, like the Anglo-Saxons. However, in the legal code, there are indications that if a Welsh couple split up, the brewing equipment would go to the husband. Now, maybe this was a spiteful thing. If you aren't brewing for me, you aren't brewing for anybody. But it probably is an indication that in Wales, it was the men who were doing the brewing. But that being said, this is all for home brewing and for domestic consumption. In large-scale commercial brewing in Anglo-Saxon territories, which would come along later, it was probably the men who dominated the profession. And there certainly was a market for large-scale commercial brewing. Now let's pause for a minute and do an experiment. How much ale do you think someone can drink in a day, every day, before he or she starts to develop a problem? How about per month? How much ale can a person drink per month 
and be okay. Do you have a number in mind? Well, let's compare it to the Anglo-Saxons. And to start off with, let's talk about the monks. They're holy men. They're in monasteries. And presumably, they aren't throwing keggers. So how much did they drink? Well, the daily allowance for a monk, this is a daily allowance, was a gallon of good ale and possibly a gallon of weak ale on top of that. A gallon a day per monk, or maybe even two gallons. We're talking about somewhere between 8 and 16 pints a day, and that's just the ale. Monasteries often had their own vineyards and thus their own wine. You might be thinking that this was strictly for mass, and you would be wrong. According to the 11th century set of rules, monks were given 5 pounds of wine per day, provided that the harvest was good. That's probably just over a half a gallon of wine every day. If the harvest was bad, they would get three pounds of wine and then three pounds of ale per day, you know, to compensate for the lost wine. And that was in a bad year. And in the terrifying prospect that there was no wine available whatsoever, well, then they'd get six pounds of ale. Now, the weight could change depending on the quality of the ale, but that's around six pints a day. And that's on an extremely bad year. Now, later on, the church would try and clamp down on drunkenness amongst their members, but it seems like earlier Anglo-Saxon England was, well, rather jolly. Though there were limits. For example, it seems like they tried to slow things down over Lent. It was generally a bad idea to drink on Lent, apparently. So, you know, good for them. But in general, whoa, right? St. Boniface was particularly disturbed by this trend of drunken booze hounds in Britain. So he wrote to Cuthbert, a different Cuthbert from the one who had a wine spring in his home, and he talked about this issue and was really concerned that all of Christendom was fairly sober, except for England. As far as Boniface could tell, it was just the heathens and the English who were the 24-hour party people. And then you have Alcuin, another famous figure in English history, sending one of his pupils to King Offa and asking the king to keep him away from drink and instead direct him towards his duties. It's a fairly specific order, right? And actually, Alcuin was rather focused on booze. After Lindisfarne was sacked, Alcuin made sure to get a dig in on how the monks there were drunks and needed to sober up. It was almost the equivalent of, I'm really sorry the Vikings attacked you, drunky. He also warned other monks of the dangers of engaging in drunken orgies. He's writing to monks here. From around this same period, there were also rules established for what to do when a monk was so drunk that he threw up the Eucharist. Apparently, you'd have to have a strict fast that would last for 60 days. And this was just for the normal everyday stuff. When there was a religious festival, you better watch out. Even on the eve of the religious festival, such as the eve of a saint's day, keep an eye on those monks. We can assume this because there are monastery rules against drinking too much on the eve of religious festivals, which, if the Anglo-Saxons are anything like us, the presence of that rule means that things got out of hand and someone went and ruined it for everybody. But you have to love the dedication there. You expect a festival to be filled with drunks, but people apparently were pre-funking for the festival. Monks were pre-funking for the festival. So anyway, back to the point. We're talking about a base provision of one to two gallons of ale per day per monk. And probably plenty of stern glances and outright glares from various church officials while they invade against drunkenness to both the monks and the laypeople. Oh, and also maybe some excellent parties and possibly orgies. What was with that? Now, what about the common people? 
Well, we're kind of spotty in our resources, but we know that in the 16th century, there's a record that indicates that a modest household would brew 200 gallons of ale every month. That's 1,600 pints in a modest 16th century household. While it isn't clear how much early Anglo-Saxon households would brew, based upon the level of drunkenness amongst the monks, and also the fact that we don't have any records indicating early Anglo-Saxons were engaged in temperance, we could probably assume that they were brewing quite a bit at home as well. Now, you might deduce from all this that the Anglo-Saxons really liked to drink. And you'd be right. There are plenty of heroic poems that exalt alcohol and refer to drinking either in a neutral or positive light. Drinking alcohol and listening to music was actually highly prized by the Anglo-Saxons, just like it was by the Celts. But can you blame them? Drinking was an important part of social events and feasts, and the drinking would often continue long after the eating was done. And actually, providing unlimited alcohol was tied up in being a good host and providing hospitality. Now, laws regarding drunken behavior started to appear by the 7th century, and you were expected to stand by your own drunken statements. Yeah, you heard that right. The boasts that you made while you were drunk still stood once you sobered up. The contracts that you entered into while drunk were still enforceable. The Anglo-Saxons expected you to be able to hold your alcohol and not get drunk. So if you ended up legless, you were on your own. Conversely, drunken contracts were null and void in Wales. And speaking as a lightweight Welshman, I'm kind of happy about that. But the Anglo-Saxon rules reflect that in England, while drinking was encouraged, getting blitzed wasn't, especially amongst the warriors and the leaders. We see that in Beowulf, where he accuses Unferth of being drunk. Sure, it's a literary source, but it might reflect the aristocratic values of the period, so it is useful. And actually, there was something even more shameful than being drunk yourself, and that was persuading someone to drink more than he or she could handle. It turns out that peer pressure and the instinct to go, oh, come on, just have one more drink with me, are actually rather ancient traditions in the Western world. So yeah, drunkenness certainly did occur in Anglo-Saxon life. How could it not with the levels of alcohol that were flowing? Take the story of the Abbot of Abingdon as an example. The foundations had just been measured for his new monastery, and he wanted to celebrate, so he invited King Edred and his men to dine with him. The feast and the alcohol continued for the entire day. The abbot would have you see this story as a miracle, that without divine intervention, the king and his men would have run out of drink before the end of the feast. And maybe that's the case. Who's to say? But the more interesting story here is that the king and his men feasted all day. And in such quantities that the abbot was left convinced that if it wasn't for the Holy Ghost hitting the supermarket and grabbing a couple fresh cases of booze, the party would have fizzled out. So they must have been drinking a hell of a lot. And actually, while they were drinking, they might have been telling rather dirty riddles. It seems that sexually charged riddles were a favorite pastime amongst the Anglo-Saxons once they had a few pints in them. But it wasn't just miraculous feasts marking the beginnings of monasteries that would lead to large amounts of drinking. There were other occasions, such as weddings. Anglo-Saxon weddings, much like many weddings today, featured large quantities of alcohol. For example, there's a tale of King Hardicanute passing out drunk at a wedding. There's also a great deal of alcohol being consumed following funerals, and actually this last bit really bothered certain members of the church. But given the fact that their monasteries were drowning in alcohol, I don't know if they had a leg to stand on. But all this drinking had its dark side. Which brings us to our listener challenge. 
So on Facebook and Twitter, I asked for your most embarrassing and shameful drunken stories, and I promised I would compare the best one to the Anglo-Saxons. Basically answering the age-old question of, would I have gotten kicked out of a pub in the Dark Ages? Well, I got quite a few responses, and I have to say, I am stunned at how well-behaved and grown-up you all are. Even the somewhat violent drunken stories had an element of heroism to them. For example, here's Optimus Prime recounting the tale of Glenn. Got kicked out of a pub in the days I was a soldier. One of the locals hit a college missus, so I ran and jumped on his back, wrestling him to the ground. Almost like David and Goliath. This caused a mass brawl, and the bouncers didn't have a clue what to do. Now Glenn doesn't tell us what happened next, but my guess is that he shouted, Autobots, roll out! Anyway, you're all very good people, or at least you're smart enough to keep your shame secret. Thus, you're either better or smarter than me and most of my friends, as we all have incredibly shameful stories. Just awful, shameful stuff. And yet you're responding with these sweet stories of kissing someone you had a big crush on or defending someone's honor. So overall, as I was reading these responses, I was starting to despair. That is, until I had a response from John. It simply said, D. Just a single letter, capitalized. And I realized that John had taken my challenge to the next level, and he was live-blogging his mayhem, like Hunter S. Thompson Reborn. However, unlike Hunter S. Thompson, it seems that John lacks fortitude and passed out before he could complete recounting his epic night of drunken debauchery. Maybe next time, John. So what stories would the Anglo-Saxons have told? Well, violence and alcohol seem to be rather closely connected in Anglo-Saxon life. The 7th century kings of Kent... Hother and Edric established laws regarding fines for taking away someone's cup while drinking, which seems strange considering that a friend saying, hey, you've had enough, is generally considered a good thing in modern life. But you have to think about this in context. This wasn't the only law, after all, and most of the other laws had to do with drunken violence, so it's likely that this law was trying to avoid the instigation of conflict and keep people placid and just happily drunk. But let's talk about some of those other laws. So if you draw your weapon while drinking, you owe the king 12 shillings, and you owe the building owner 1 shilling. If you draw blood, you owe the king 50 shillings, and a fair recompense to the owner of the building. In another 7th century law, there's a 30 shilling fine for instigating a fight where the victim isn't fighting back. And if you're stupid enough to do this while you're in the king's presence, or at least in Kent under King Ethelbert, well, you'll end up paying a double fine. Hell, even accepting a cup of alcohol was dangerous. There's always the possibility of you getting poisoned, but you also might just get stabbed like what happened to Edward the Martyr. Drunkenness and violence were tightly connected, and it seemed to be a big problem for the Anglo-Saxons. And this also is reflected in Beowulf, in one of my favorite compliments in all of British history, possibly my favorite compliment of all time. The poem is recounting how honorable the son of Ecthau is. What a good and fine man he is. And as proof of his virtue, the poem points out that, quote, he didn't slay his friends when drunk, end quote. That's the mark of a good man. It didn't say he didn't fight people when drunk. It didn't say he didn't kill anyone when drunk. It just said he didn't slay his friends when drunk. 
That's a pretty low bar to meet. Though, I suppose not all friends are created equal. But as we discussed earlier, if you were a warrior or a leader, you'd be expected to be able to hold your liquor. And not just according to heroic poems, but we also have secondary sources speaking about it. For example, William of Malmesbury claims that Ethelred the Unready was criticized for focusing only upon wine and women. The implication here, of course, is that he needed to pay attention to the affairs of state. But there's a subtext here, and that's that a leader, while he may be in the position to be a drunken womanizer, shouldn't be. So with that in mind, I think we can agree that, being that we had no stories of anyone getting killed and certainly no friends getting killed, our listener responses would it be considered to be extremely shameful by Anglo-Saxon standards. That is, unless the writers were leaders or warriors, but in that case, it's just the shame of not being able to hold your liquor. So well done, everyone. And even those of you who played this close to your chest and didn't write in, so long as you didn't kill a friend, I think you'd be okay in the Dark Ages. Now, despite the fact that alcohol had a rather dark side to it, early on it had these odd rare moments where women could obtain some modicum of advancement. Generally, Anglo-Saxon life was patriarchal, but you have the appearance of surnames like Malster and Brewster, which suggests that some women were obtaining renown in the production of alcohol. And then you have the prestigious positions related to alcohol. For example, early cupbearers were female and were given places of honor in Anglo-Saxon life at least in Kent under Ethelbert. In his kingdom, if anyone raped a nobleman's female cupbearer, he'd be liable to pay nearly double the fine that he'd be responsible for if he killed a man on a nobleman's estate. If the offense occurred regarding a churl's cupbearer, he'd be liable for the same fine as if he attacked a man, basically the fine for breaching the peace. This placed female cupbearers on the same level as men in a churl's home, and actually higher than men in nobles' homes. It would be easy to just read these laws as a condemnation of rape. But there's another level here if we look for it. What these laws are telling us is that a cupbearer must have been a very prestigious duty, since it essentially made the woman holding the title worth more in the Anglo-Saxon Ware Guild, their system of fines. As the centuries pass, we'll reach a point where all cupbearers are men. For example, Harold Godwinson was a cupbearer for Edward the Confessor. But to begin with, there were female cupbearers. And, at least according to one story of Hengist and Horsa, Hengist's daughter was a cupbearer to Vortigern. So it was a rare position of honor for women in Anglo-Saxon society. And if you want to visualize what this position might have looked like, she would have likely have been dressed well, but the thing that would have set her apart would have been the sieve or spoon hanging on a cord around her neck, so as to strain the drink as it was poured. Members might recall Melissa's complaint of the Anglo-Saxon ale experiment being chewy. A strainer might have helped with that. Okay, let's cover another part of the Facebook-Twitter challenge. The question of whether or not you would have been thrown out of a pub in the Dark Ages assumes that there were pubs. Today, pubs are ubiquitous. It seems strange to us that there wouldn't be drinking establishments back then, especially with all the drinking they were doing. But all the tales and laws I've been discussing today have related to drinking in private locations. So what about official drinking establishments? When did they come around? Well, we're not sure. Part of the problem is, is that it seems they weren't officially licensed, so it's hard to track down when they started. If a brewer just decided to start selling his latest brew out of his home, does that make it an alehouse? It's hard to know. So all we really can rely upon is when they first appear in the laws. And so we know that alehouses were around by the 900s because Ethelred referenced them in his laws. 
of course with references to fines for breaches of the peace in alehouses. Yes, barroom brawls. So there you go. Even if you were the sort of person who slays his friends when drunk, you might not have been thrown out of a Dark Ages pub because there might not have been any pubs in the Dark Ages. I'm glad to have cleared that up for you. So for the last couple weeks, we've been talking about drinking. And all this booze has kind of made me hungry. And as soon as I covered beer, you must have known that I would cover food. If Portland is known for only one thing, it's... Well, it's probably hipsters. But if Portland is known for three things, it's still hipsters, but it's also beer and food. We're a bunch of foodies here. So of course I want to talk about food. Food production was incredibly important to the Anglo-Saxons. For example, even when Alfred was in the middle of his war with the Danes, he kept part of his army guarding the burrows. This might not be news to you, since an army marches on his stomach is a rather old notion, but that bit of military history does shed some light on the importance of England's breadbasket. Now, we already know that Britain was quite fertile, but not all of the land was suitable for cultivation of crops, such as grains. For example, this was prior to the creation of adequate drainage systems. As such, there would have been a number of locations that, while they would be useful today, would simply have been too waterlogged to be effective for agriculture. Furthermore, you have to take into account the issue of forest cover. While Britain wasn't covered in the dense forests of its prehistoric days, it still was more wooded than it is today, especially in the Dark Ages, as it seems that a lot of the land was abandoned and left fallow. So the Anglo-Saxons arrive, or at least the Anglo-Saxon culture does, and we have the loss of much of the Romano-British agricultural economy at around the same time. Those big industrialized farms we've been talking about are gone. So what filled the gap? Well, as far as we can tell, wild woods and some amount of subsistence-level farming filled that gap for a little bit. They were probably using rather primitive tools, such as digging sticks, and probably burned a shockingly large amount of calories for the amount of food that they took in. Later on, we have evidence of plows being drawn by animals, with the ox coming first and later horses, since horses can do the work about 50% faster than oxen. But in the early period, we might just be dealing with hand-plowed fields. We're talking about arthritic, bony, but also muscular people living lives of hard labor. Now, later in Anglo-Saxon history, agriculture seems like it started to become more efficient and large-scale once again. For example, we see records of large-scale improvements such as mills being built on land owned by abbots. And despite the smaller percentage of the population going into farming and the Danish raids that were occurring, it seems that the production would have still been higher than during the early migration period, where they were still engaged in subsistence-level farming. Though it really should be noted that most of our records from this time come from sources speaking about large holdings and wealthy landowners. We know relatively little about the average Englishman from this era. As a result, we don't know a lot about that subsistence farming that I've been talking about and how many remained once things got bigger. Nor do we have reliable information on how much food was produced by the farmers on average, since even when we have the rare indication of a harvest yield, we don't have enough information to determine whether it was a good year or not, and whether that particular farm was indicative of the farming culture as a whole. It could have been a very rainy year, or maybe it was really dry that year. We just don't know. So it's just hard to figure out the averages for the era. Some scholars argue that crop yields would have been very low 
with some estimating that an acre could produce about 10 bushels a year of grain, and that grains would have formed a small portion of the Anglo-Saxon diet as a result. And actually, pollen counts have shown that forests reclaimed huge sections of land as the fields were abandoned in the early post-Roman period. However, it seems that, at least in the later Anglo-Saxon period, that grains were the standard food for the people. For example, Aelfric says, quote, the plowman feeds us all, end quote. And we see references to grain being utilized for food rents. So maybe this is an issue of timing, that in the earlier era, there wasn't much to go around, but in the later era, after the large-scale farms began producing grain, maybe over very large swaths of land, it became more of a staple food. So let's talk about those grains. Well, wheat was probably the most expensive out of the bunch, but it was also more often specifically mentioned in records. This indicates that it was probably a preferred grain by those who could actually afford it. This might have been because wheat produces a rather pleasant bread. Unlike its cousin, barley, when wheat flour is mixed with water, it becomes a firm dough. And then when it's mixed with yeast and baked, the yeast releases carbon dioxide, making the bread light and fluffy basically like the bread we all know and love. So wheat was good stuff. Monasteries often specified wheat as their food rent, proving once again that it was pretty good to be a monk in Anglo-Saxon England. Tons of beer, wheat, and enough partying that the Continental Church was more than a little concerned. Good times for those monks. Now wheat was also used in some medicines and was even prescribed as a meal for young children. So wheat was pretty good stuff if you could get your hands on it. Now, barley is also mentioned in food rents, though not nearly as often as wheat. Barley was actually a fairly dominant grain in the South following the withdrawal of Rome, perhaps being the number one crop. However, because of its composition, bread made from barley is often denser, heavier, and also strongly flavored. That didn't stop it from being harvested, and oftentimes also being made into bread, of course. You can still buy barley bread today, but for the Anglo-Saxon times, it had a more important purpose than bread. It was used for the production of malt, and of course malt was used for making ale. In fact, some archaeological digs from the early Anglo-Saxon sites have found that almost all the barley was hulled. At least all the barley they found. Now if you're making bread, you'd want to get rid of that hull. You'd want it to be what they call naked barley. But if you were malting the grain, you'd want to leave those holes on. So these finds suggest that the barley was primarily, or maybe even exclusively, used for malting during some periods of Anglo-Saxon history. Although it certainly could have also been used in soups and stews, and it also could have been used, of course, in bread, much like it is today in all three. Now how about rye? Who doesn't love rye bread? Well, rye was also being grown in Anglo-Saxon England. Keep in mind that we're talking about a large territory with a variety of different climates and soil types, so it really shouldn't surprise us that we have a variety of different crops being grown depending on where we're looking at. Now, rye was basically the default crop for Europe. If you can't grow anything else, give rye a shot because it's hardy as hell. That's why it was so common in Europe. But because England had such a temperate climate, and also fertile soil, some of the fancier grains, such as wheat and barley, were able to be grown as well. But yeah, there was plenty of rye. And it actually might have been grown in combination with wheat. And that actually makes sense. If you're growing wheat, and you're worried that this year might be a bad harvest year, if you have rye growing as well, you're at least going to be able to have something. Now the downside of rye is that it's susceptible to ergot. Ergot is a fungus. 
and it commonly infects rye, and can cause all manner of havoc upon people. It can cause gangrene, it can cause miscarriages, it can even cause hallucinations. In fact, one of the theories regarding the Salem witch trials is that that was due to ergot poisoning. So, you know, watch out next time you have a sandwich on rye. Okay, what else was there? Well, we have oats. Oats were also probably grown in significant quantities in Anglo-Saxon England. However, unlike wheat and barley, they don't appear in food rents and are only mentioned in connection to medicine three times, so hardly at all. So oats might have been eaten by the people, and there are references to the Welsh eating oats in their diet. However, they also might have been used to produce alcohol. I mean, we're talking about an inventive people here, and they clearly love to drink. So if they could use something to make alcohol, they probably would. Or they might have just used oats to feed their livestock. It's hard to say. But ultimately, what an individual region was growing and eating depended on the climate and the soil. But it's probably fair to say that there was a decent amount of grains throughout Britain. Now, harvest time was in August. The Anglo-Saxons referred to this month as Weed Monath, Weed Month. The farmers would be in a race against time to harvest their grain before the weeds took over. In fact, the records indicate that the farmers would specifically sow their fields so that they could harvest before this happened. But in all reality, their fields were probably infested with weeds most of the year, since they used manure to fertilize the soil, and that almost certainly contained all sorts of seeds. But then again, some weeds were worse than others. For example, corn cockle produces a toxin that would have matured at the same time as grain. So the early farmers were probably trying to avoid that particular weed when they timed their sowing and harvests. And since we're talking about harvest time, let's talk about hunger. Our instinct might be to think of winter as being the lean months. After all, the leaves have fallen from the trees, it's cold out, and not a lot is growing. So the people must have been hungry, right? Well, for an agricultural society with a harvest time in August, it probably wouldn't have been winter that would have been the most dangerous season for hunger. Sure, you can't go foraging for fruit and vegetables, but you still had your harvest, and that was only several months ago, so you should have plenty of grain in storage unless something catastrophic happened and it all went bad. So winter wouldn't be the problem. It actually would be late spring and summer. You have crops that are growing, but they aren't matured yet. Fruits on the trees, but it's not ripe yet. And to make matters worse, there's a lot of work to be done, so you'd be burning up a lot of calories. Spring and early summer must have been awful. Now a little later into summer, but shortly before harvest, you'd at least have apples and the like that you can pick from the wild. But April through June must have been more than a little frustrating when it came to staple foods like grain. But of course, it wasn't just grain that was being grown. There were also fruits and vegetables. We see references to herbs and vegetables being grown on king's estates by the 9th century, and there's little reason to believe that this was a recent development. After all, gardens were also common in Wales, and actually, theft from a garden had specific fines in Wales. And the presence of gardens in Britain stretches back to the Celtic period and beyond. So gardens were nothing new. However, we need to draw a sharp line between how we view veggies currently and how they might have been viewed back then. In our current era, we tend to focus on vegetables that lend themselves towards mass production. Things that can be cultivated and grown on large scales. But there's no indication that the Anglo-Saxons drew such distinctions. They might have been eating foods that we would consider weeds today. And in fact, many wild veggies are rather nutritious, carrying large amounts of vitamins. 
So while the Anglo-Saxons seem to have gardens, they might not have looked like the garden you have in your backyard. And they might have been supplementing their diet by foraging and picking plants that today we would consider weeds and distasteful. But back to these gardens of theirs. What were they growing? Well, among the veggies, we see references to onions, garlic, shallots, celery, radishes, turnip, kale, beans, peas, lettuce, cabbage, and leeks. And as for flavoring, we see references to dill, parsley, chevreuil, mint, basil, bog myrtle, mustard seed, thyme, saffron, nettle, comfrey, sorrel, pennyroyal, coriander, cumin, betony, poppy, and tarragon. And that's not even including the various flowers they'd use, like elderflower. So basically, this is all starting to sound a lot like my herb cabinet at the moment. Now, obviously, all of this wouldn't have been present in every garden. And a lot of the records come from what was being grown or used in monasteries, which might not reflect the life of the commoner. But this does provide us with a rough idea of the sorts of things that they might have had growing and what they might have been eating. And actually, Elfric Bata said that kale, or at least its close cousins, were apparently eaten daily, and so was celery. So in that regard, the Anglo-Saxons might have been a great deal like the hippies in Portland. Elfric also said that garlic was a daily occurrence in meals from this era. And actually, the word for leek is related to the Anglo-Saxon word for garden, gardener, and there's even a runic inscription that derives its name from the leek, and it looks a great deal like a leek. So my guess is that leeks must have also been common as well. In fact, the Anglo-Saxons seem to just be partial to anything in the onion family. For example, there's a recipe from the late medieval period, which might reflect earlier Anglo-Saxon tastes, that was basically a salad, and it consisted almost entirely of onions. It had garlic, leeks, scallions, onions, and herbs. Come to think of it, that really should have been a battle meal. If a warrior's spear didn't kill you, his stench would have. And speaking of smells, beans were also common in the Anglo-Saxon era. Though from the dig sites we found, it seems they weren't as common as grains. But we are pretty sure that they are fairly common. We can deduce that simply from the fact that a ton of place and field names feature beans in them somewhere. And from several references that we have, we can guess that when they were grown, beans were probably produced in fairly large quantities. Though considering that they're generally a good food source because they're nutritious and they're easily dried for preservation, that's not too shocking. So we do see references to a lot of bean and pea production and consumption. But that comes with a well-known side effect and one that the Anglo-Saxons were all too aware of. Multiple medicinal references discuss the gassy side effects of beans and peas, and the church actually considered this downright irreligious. Apparently, um, letting one slip? Well, that's a sign of the fall from grace. And this focus on beans and peas' effect on bodily functions actually got to the point where St. Jerome forbid nuns from eating them at all. In addition to the distressing experience of being surrounded by farting nuns, St. Jerome was also convinced that the beans and peas and I'm not making this up here. Well, uh, he was convinced that they, quote, tickle the genitals, end quote, and that nuns should be protected from that. Come on, Jerome. These poor ladies don't have much. All they want is a little thrill with dinner. Are you really going to take that from them? Now, when taken in combination with last week's discussion of drunken monk orgies, and now we have farting foodie nuns who apparently get very excited over beans and peas, it really makes you wonder what was going on back there, doesn't it? 
And speaking of foods with strange side effects, let's talk about root veggies. Root vegetables such as carrots show up later in the Anglo-Saxon period, and some of them are mentioned in reference to cures for depression and other things. But here's where it gets really fun. Radishes in particular are supposed to be good for warding off a woman's chatter. I'm not making that up here. That's an actual Anglo-Saxon cure. Basically, shh, shh, now eat your radishes. All right, let's get off of the topic of cures for women who like to talk, and let's get back to agriculture. So we have references that stretch back to at least the 9th century in the Anglo-Saxon era that refer to orchards. Of course, we know that Romans had orchards, but on the other hand, we see evidence that a lot of fields were abandoned and subsequently reclaimed by nature. So maybe they all disappeared following the withdrawal. And actually, in early Anglo-Saxon England and in Wales, we don't see mention of fruit orchards, but we do see references to fruit trees being grown in the wild, in groves and forests. So maybe we were dealing with about a 400-year gap where there just weren't any orchards. And actually, in support of this, fruit trees such as apple and pear trees were significant enough to be often used as indications of boundaries in plots of land. And then we have laws that indicate that in autumn, no pigs were allowed to be in the woods for several weeks, probably so that the people could go in and collect the fruit and veggies in there. So in early Anglo-Saxon Britain, orchards probably weren't around, or at least they weren't prevalent. And it was wild fruit that played an important role in the diet of the people. Now, of course, the availability of fruits and vegetables depended on where you lived in the country, but Britain has long been renowned for being fertile, and later travelers remarked upon the abundance of fruit trees providing apples, pears, cherries, and plums. So my guess is that so long as you lived near a wood, you probably had a fair amount of fruit in your diet. Interestingly, there are Welsh laws that governed trees that were planted in the garden, and they even prescribed the value of grafting trees that gave fruit. The grafting would apparently happen in spring, by the way. So at least in Wales, we know that the people were engaged in selecting and cultivating particular strains of fruit trees, though I should note that the creation of specific varieties of fruit wasn't recorded until the Norman times, so we don't know when that exactly started. But regardless, in addition to foraging for wild fruit, the cultivation of fruit was serious business, especially in Wales. So apples. They're pretty useful for cider, but they also have a bunch of other uses. They're mentioned in traditional medicines. For example, they apparently are good if you have gastric issues. The apples of Britain were separated into sour apples, crab apples, sweet apples, wood apples, and green apples. So there were quite a few varieties on the island. Now, not much is said about pears by the Anglo-Saxons, but hopefully they used them for at least making cider because pear cider is awesome. We do see references to blackberries, raspberries, strawberries, and cherries in traditional medicines, so we can be pretty sure that they were also on the island, and we can definitely be sure that grapes were around, at least for the production of some rather disappointing wine. We're also pretty sure that fruit was dried for preservation. For example, something that you might not know about the Venerable Bede is that he was a foodie. And we can be thankful for that, because due to his foodiness, we know that he bequeathed his pepper as well as his dried prunes and raisins. And as a result, we can be sure that, one, there was a sufficient trade system at his time so as to allow him to get his hands on pepper from overseas, and two, that fruits were being dried. As you've probably realized, finding archaeological records of small fruits like grapes is pretty tough. 
And as far as finding evidence of intentionally dried grapes, such as raisins, well, that really cranks the difficulty up to nightmare mode, doesn't it? So having written records like this is quite helpful. So dried fruit, the Anglo-Saxons had it. Or at least, Bede the foodie had it. And speaking of monks, fruit, in addition to being a key part of making alcohol, also was probably a major part of meals for monasteries, along with grains and veggies. It was one of the primary dishes, in fact, for their meals. The focus upon fruit at meals probably led to an ever-increasing stock of fruit trees, and if they did not yet have orchards, it probably helped in the development of those orchards. Okay, so to round out our vegan review of the Anglo-Saxon diet, let's talk about nuts. There's native hazelnuts that probably would have been picked in the early era, and they certainly were later on. And actually, the gathering of those nuts was probably a significant part of the diet at the time for anyone who had access to them. A hazel grove could provide a huge amount of food, and hazelnuts have even been found in warrior grave goods. And of course, we've spoken about hazelnuts being gathered in prehistoric times, so there's nothing new about this, and there's no reason to think that they wouldn't have figured into the diet of the Anglo-Saxon era. Now, there are also sweet chestnuts, almonds, walnuts, pine nuts, and acorns that might have been eaten at various points in the Anglo-Saxon period, but the reports are rather sketchy on a number of them, so we can't say for certain when they arrived, whether they were cultivated, and how common they were as food items. So basically... Hazelnuts, yes. All other nuts, not sure. So there you have it. Vegan life in the Dark Ages. It involved a lot of grain, it involved a lot of onions, and probably involved a lot of hazelnuts. Oh, and of course, apples. Big on apples. Next up, we're going to talk about the top of the food pyramid. Oh yes, the delicious, savory top. Now, as some of you might remember from the members' podcasts, cattle was a big deal amongst the Celts. Well, it was also a big deal for the Anglo-Saxons, too. And actually, cow and calf are Saxon words. So is heifer, for that matter. Anyway, beef, which is a French word. Everyone loves beef. We also love cheese, butter, and to a lesser extent, clogged arteries. So we're going to see a bit of emphasis placed upon cattle in the Anglo-Saxon world. Though it should be pointed out that the dominance of beef in your diet would depend on your location, your class level, and also where you were living. In the early period, as an example, we suspect that based on bones we found, that cattle represented about 25% of the meat diet for the people. Now, of course, people weren't eating as much meat as we are now, generally, but as much as 25% of all meat was cattle in at least some areas and some classes. But just because you were living in a beef-centric location doesn't mean that you'd necessarily have regular access to it if you weren't from the proper class. Conversely, if you're wealthy in an area that didn't have many cattle, the meat in your diet might consist more of mutton or pork or something else. And fun fact here, mutton and pork are French words, not Anglo-Saxon. Anyway, there are a ton of variables in play that would determine what you'd be eating. Also, Cattle was tied into social standing and social behaviors. For example, if you're a man of wealth in Wales, you're expected to have a cattle pen, and if you made the mistake of breaking the silence in court, you could be fined as much as three cattle. Cattle and oxen were used in fines well into the Norman period, actually. 
and losing cattle was a very big deal, and thus they made rather efficient fines. For example, if you're caught stealing or buying stolen cattle, you could be fined 60 hides. Or if you were Welsh, you would be fined 120 hides. Thanks for that. Needless to say, in times of strife, cattle wrestling probably saw an uptick. So in the early migration period, Britain was probably swarming with cattle wrestlers of one sort or another. And once again during the Viking period, and then again during the early Norman period. And this actually would have been nothing new for the island. Both Britannia and Ireland have stories of cattle rustling in their ancient Celtic pasts. In fact, one of the most famous stories of Cúhulain involves a cattle raid. So to have cattle was to be a person of wealth, but it was also to be a target in unstable times. Interestingly, there was even an insurance pool in London to deal with cattle theft. Everyone would pay a shilling, and then if you had your cattle stolen, you could draw from the pool for reimbursement. I'm sure you're going to be shocked to learn that there were numerous complaints of fraud and abuse of the system. Now, beef and beef fat also appeared in Anglo-Saxon medicine. And when you think about it, it wasn't a terrible choice. Sure, it might not actually cure the ailment you were stricken with, but nutritionally, it packed a bigger punch than most of the foods on the menu. Fat has much more energy per gram than starches or sugars, and there are a bunch of amino acids, minerals, and other elements in meat. So would it cure you? Probably not. But I suppose you could look at it as the Dark Ages equivalent of a multivitamin. But of course, this vitamin M was only regularly available to the wealthy, which is becoming a common theme, I think. And as an added bonus, the Dark Ages people were more active than most of us are today, so they probably didn't have to worry about clogged arteries like we do now. So in general, if you had more meat in your diet, you were probably also healthier. Now cattle were also used in food rent, sometimes as stock, and other times they were clearly intended to be used just as food. But I think there's a different use that might have been in play during the early migration period. In early pagan days of Anglo-Saxon Britain, it seems that oxen and cattle were being sacrificed. We found their bones, teeth, and skulls in a large number of graves, and even Bede references this religious behavior. But here's the best example of the value of cattle that I can give you. In 991, Æthelred issued his legal code. Creatively, it's referred to as Æthelred's Code. And in it, the theft of cattle and the crime of murder were seen as crimes on the same level. I'll let that sink in. So let's talk about these all-important animals. Now, the native cattle of Britannia, and I mean native in that they'd been there probably since the Neolithic times, were probably rather small and also pretty hardy. There's a good chance that they could live outside all year long and were relatively free of serious diseases. They also probably had less saturated fat than modern beef, which is another reason, other than the constant exercise, as to why arteries might not have been as clogged as they are now. From the record, it appears that the Anglo-Saxons had three breeds, the small, dark, Neolithic cattle, the local white cattle that are probably very similar to current white park cattle, and then the Saxons also probably brought over their own red cattle. Later on, we're going to get into the Danelaw period, and it seems that when the Vikings came over and established Danelaw, they brought their own cattle with them, and these animals were larger than the local varieties. As for the overall size of the cattle, it's kind of hard to say. Depending on the area, husbandry, what they were fed, and all manner of other variables, you can end up with cattle of all sorts of sizes. 
And just because a cow or bull was small didn't necessarily mean that was a bad thing, nor did it mean that these animals were of a lesser breed or poorly cared for. A smaller cow might have had less meat on it, but it was also going to be a lot easier to control and deal with. Humans are small, soft, and squishy creatures when compared with a pissed off bull. So having large breeds wasn't always the best option. And from the record, it doesn't seem like cattle purchasing placed an emphasis on size. So that suggests that farmers were all too aware of the potential danger of a giant cow. Now as for husbandry, like I mentioned a few minutes ago, dig sites have found that there was a low incidence of disease amongst cattle from this period, which might mean that they were well taken care of. On the other hand, it might also mean that diseased cattle were just quickly killed and eaten. We just don't know. Furthermore, from what evidence of maladies that we found, such as arthritis, it suggests that cattle were often used as labor rather than just as a food source, at least amongst the Anglo-Saxons. In Wales, there are laws on the books that gave the impression that cattle were more of a dairy source than a labor source. For example, a farmer might have one bull for every 100 cows, and that the bull had to be separated from the cows most of the year. Well, this is rather similar to a modern dairy herd. But of course, there must have been spare bulls, and those could have easily been used for labor or for food. And as we've discussed before, simply because a law is on the books doesn't necessarily mean that it reflects the actual culture of the time or even what actually happened. Sometimes laws are just aspirational, and this might have just been the personal ambitions of the legislator, and it never really went into practice. We can't say for sure. But in the end, we just don't have a lot of evidence of disease amongst cattle. At least, not as much as we might imagine. There certainly was disease, and the laws reflect that. In fact, in Wales, there were a number of warranties that you'd have to uphold if you sold cattle. But in general, it seems that cattle were in good health. Now, the Anglo-Saxons probably built stalls for their cattle in winter. We can guess that because Bede mentions that it wasn't done in Ireland, which he clearly thought was strange. So we can pretty much draw the conclusion that if you thought it was strange that they weren't doing it, that the Anglo-Saxons must have been doing it. We've also found evidence of stalls, though whether these were used for fattening up the animal prior to slaughter or for another reason, it isn't exactly clear. And related to fattening up, we have fodder. While it seems that cattle would graze most of the year on grass, fodder was almost certainly used in winter and might have been used to fatten up the cattle. Now, while the cattle might have been stalled in winter, like I said, it doesn't seem like that was the case for the rest of the year. And there are field names that reflect that they were probably put out to pasture a lot. We have field names for enclosed paddocks, and we even see references for names for pastures that were specifically designated for use at night. So it seems that, by and large, cattle were grass-fed and just kind of roamed around in their paddocks. But back to the fodder. It seems that fodder was pretty important. In fact, some of the laws we found indicate that payment for using someone's animals was to be made in fodder. Almost like bring it back with a full tank of gas, right? And considering the number of field names that involve hay, such as haycroft, it does support the assumption that a big portion of that fodder was hay. So while the cattle probably grazed a great deal more than most modern breeds, it seems that hay and other sources of fodder were a part of their diet. Incidentally, that hay would have probably been cut and turned, and while we don't have archaeological evidence of wooden rakes, we have found literary references that indicate they were used on farms for gathering hay. So it doesn't sound too different from a non-industrialized farm, does it? Alright, now you probably know more than you wanted to know about cattle. So how about I answer the question that's really been nagging at you? When was the best time to get a burger? 
you probably guessed that it was autumn, right? Autumn is the harvest month, so people tend to assume that that's when slaughter would occur. And certainly there's a good reason to slaughter food animals in autumn. Winter's coming, and it cuts down on costs, so you don't have to provide fodder and space for the animals. However, it doesn't make a tremendous amount of sense to slaughter these animals in bulk. Chances are that there was an uptick in beef on the table in the colder months, but it would also be done slowly over the course of months. It wasn't going to be like, oh, the leaves are turning, it's time to kill Bessie and all her friends. After all, each one of these animals produced around 300 pounds of meat. That's a lot of burger. So you don't need to kill them all. They were probably just killing one at a time over very slow periods of time. Now, based on the bones that we found, generally cows were less likely to be slaughtered at a young age than bulls. That suggests that milk production was probably valued, though it might have also been for calving reasons. It looks like it was primarily young males at around two years old that were in the most danger of being slaughtered for meat. On a farming level, this makes perfect sense. If you go much beyond late adolescence, you're just throwing money away. You don't need to be giving all this fodder and grazing land because you're not going to get that much more meat out of the animal. I mean, it's a cold way to look at it, but you have to keep in mind that these people had a certain calculating aspect to their lives, and they had to, otherwise they weren't going to survive. Now, in the early period, butchering was probably done mostly in-house. But later on, there might have been professional butchers. These people probably would have come to your farm and slaughtered and hung the animal. Now, the idea behind hanging is to keep the muscles from contracting and toughening the meat. And then they might have let it age a little. And again, this is done for tenderizing purposes due to the lactic acids breaking down cell walls. So after it had been hung and then left to age for around one to three weeks, they would return, joint, and salt the carcass for you in exchange for a portion of the butchered meat. Then they could turn around and sell that meat to other families. Now all of this assumes that it was being done in autumn or winter, you know, in the cooler months. In the summer, you wouldn't have the luxury of allowing the meat to age because it could quickly go off on you. So if the butchering was done in summer, it was probably done in a single trip or with only a very short period of hanging and aging. Once it was butchered, very little of it would go to waste. For example, we have evidence of the brain and tongue being removed, marrow being used, probably for stews, fat being acquired. Even the offal was probably used, though it was never featured in food rent, which suggests that it was only for the lowest classes. So there you go. That's cattle in a nutshell. A pretty big nutshell, actually. So how about sheep? Those tasty, wool-producing, head-butting sheep. Well, the great thing about sheep is that they could live pretty much anywhere on the island except for the marshes. Consequently, sheep were a rather popular animal to keep and breed. By the time of the Norman Conquest, sheep were more than a little bountiful in England, so we can be pretty sure that the Anglo-Saxon farms had a good number of them in the early days. Now, the sheep on their farms were probably the brown soy, the Iron Age sheep that came in a variety of colors, and the long-tailed white sheep that the Romans brought with them. And then later on, the Vikings would bring their black horned sheep with them, though there are some who think that the black horned sheep might have been indigenous to the island. Now, these early sheep were also generally smaller and lighter than the sheep we see today. So we have a variety of slightly smaller sheep, and a lot of them. What was done with them? Well, for a start, they featured in burial superstitions. In both Christian and pagan cemeteries, we found people being buried with a leg of lamb. It's odd that we found them in both types of burials, isn't it? But I suppose no matter what your religion is, you can agree that a leg of lamb is delicious and maybe you need it in the afterworld. Now, other than that, what else were they good for? Well, sheep fertilized the fields. 
They provide milk, they can be skinned for leather, they provide wool, and they could also be butchered for meat. Oh, and they also headbutt you if you're not paying attention. I'm just saying. Now, by analyzing the bones, we've determined that, at least at some dig sites, nearly 25% of the flock were castrated males. And under Welsh law, a flock consisted of 30 sheep and a ram. This all suggests that a major purpose of keeping sheep was for the wool as well as a secondary food source, which makes sense, especially given that wool would become a major export for the island. A smart Anglo-Saxon farmer would avoid butchering the sheep and instead shear them, milk them, and also use their manure in the fields. Butchering, while it produces meat, is rather final and puts a stop to all the beneficial things that a sheep can bring to the farm. Also, sheep from this era probably would only provide around 22 pounds of meat. Compare that with the 300 pounds that a cow could provide. Now, at some dig sites, we found as much as 20% of the flock were slaughtered as yearlings. And you might think that this is proof that the sheep were a major food source. But the vast majority of the remaining sheep appear to have either been slaughtered as mutton or have reached old age. And actually, an old fat sheep would have been seen as an excellent food source since it was high in calories, i.e. tasty, and also tender. So in this situation, economics nicely dovetailed with taste. The order of the day was probably to keep the sheep producing milk, wool, and dung for as long as possible, and then get it nice and fat and have lamb chops. Or maybe get buried with the lamb chops. And naturally, any time that you have an animal that's useful and tasty, it's going to be included in food rent, and sheep were no exception. We see numerous references to sheep being demanded in rent. And they were also presented as gifts to the church and the like. And they were used in medicine. For example, if you drank some creeping thing, those creeping things that we've talked about, you were supposed to quickly drink hot sheep's blood. Sheep fat was also prescribed on occasion. Sheep were generally pretty useful. Now, of course, where you find sheep, you find shepherds. Sources differ on how well these shepherds did their job. Boniface talks about hirelings who are overlooking a flock and then fleeing at the first sign of danger, as a parable for how the church was operating. Conversely, Aelfric speaks very highly of the shepherd. So chances are, just like today, some people were good at their jobs, and some people just phoned it in. But in general, someone needed to keep an eye on the sheep any time they were put out at pasture, and be brave enough to scare off any wolves that might come by, or any bandits that might want to run off with them. And actually, around this same period in time, we also start to see references to dogs accompanying the shepherd. And eventually, that would lead, of course, to the sheepdog. Now, it's possible that the sheep were kept undercover and fed hay through the winter. But these were really hardy sheep. So, there's a good chance that they didn't need it, and were only given shelter and extra food if the winter was really bad. According to Welsh laws, it seems that sheep were thought to be a vector for a variety of diseases. And there are certainly plenty of references to livestock epidemics, though it's not clear what caused them. We see sheep sellers being held liable for rot, scab, red water, and the mange, as an example. Of course, we're talking about the Anglo-Saxons here, so if you had a sick sheep, they thought it was a pretty good idea to give it some ale. Seriously. You gotta love these people. Now, as for value, it's hard to put a figure on it. In some sources, the sheep is worth 12 shillings, whereas a cow is worth 20. So that places the value of a sheep at roughly half of a cow. That's significantly higher than I would expect, 
and higher than it is now. Conversely, other sources have placed the value of a sheep at roughly the same level as a pig. So it's just hard to pinpoint. But what we can be sure of is that there were a ton of sheep in Britain. And in some areas, sheep made up about 40% of the animal bones we've found. They were everywhere. And part of that omnipresence is the chance that lamb and mutton wasn't seen as anything special. In fact, slaves were fed mutton. In some respects, they were eating better than I do. Now, sure, it was probably fatty mutton, but because of how the sheep were raised, the fat would have been unsaturated fat, which is significantly healthier than the kind of fat we're regularly exposed to. So yeah, in some ways, they were definitely eating better than me. And also, it was probably cheaper to get a leg of lamb than it is now. Now, next on the list are goats. There were definitely less goats than sheep, but these guys are hardy. They can live just about anywhere in the UK and will even eat scrub that you don't want on your land. In fact, here in Portland, there are people who rent out goats to landowners to clear away blackberry bushes and other unwanted plants on their property. Goats are handy. They also provide milk, manure, and can be a source of meat and leather. The Anglo-Saxons weren't fools and knew a good deal when they saw one, so goats were present on the farms, though for some reason, if you had goats, you almost always had sheep as well. I'm not sure why, but they tended to come as a package. Of course, goats are also good for medicine. Burned goat flesh and fried goat bladder were among the cures that the Anglo-Saxons endured. And as a bonus, it was the kind of medicine that most people could afford. Goats were worth significantly less than sheep. But goats always get bad press. I think it's the eyes. Next up are swine. Now the Anglo-Saxons raised bristly pigs, probably descended from the European wild pig, and they were probably dark and might have had tusks. They sound a bit like wild boars, though they had shorter legs and they were rather small compared to modern pigs. It probably took three years for them to reach maturity, which is tremendously slower than modern varieties. Predictably, most pigs were slaughtered by their third year. This is because pigs were primarily a food animal, as they don't produce milk or wool. That was just fine for the Anglo-Saxons, though, because the fatty meat that pigs provide would have been favored, since we're still about a millennia away from the cultural shift towards lean meat. And we do see that pigs appear rather often in food rent, so it seems that just about everyone was digging on swine. This makes sense because pigs would have been popular due to their risk-averse nature. You see, the thing is that pigs breed like rabbits. They just go crazy. So the fear of disease and loss would have been reduced. If something catastrophic happens, you can just replenish your stock much quicker with pigs than you could with cattle or sheep. So in general, if you're a farmer, having pigs was a good investment. Now, if you kept pigs, chances are that you'd keep them in a pen or keep them tethered by their back leg. Though not all the time, there's evidence that they would be allowed to forage on the loose, even in settlements. And from analysis of place names and literary sources, we can also find evidence of the use of styes. But the thing that caught my attention was that the swine herds would drive the pigs into the forest in autumn and then stand guard against wild animals and pig wrestlers. This would go on from September until January. This is the best time for the pigs to be in the forest, rooting around and finding acorns and stuff, which would allow them to get nice and fat. But what an awful job. However, being a swineherd was on par with being a beekeeper in Anglo-Saxon society, so you had a place of pride in the community, 
Obviously, you weren't a lord, but it was a pretty good job if you could get it. And if you were the lord swineherd, you might have even received additional payments. So maybe it was worth the discomfort. It definitely was for the pigs, because every time they came back from the woods, they would be all fat and delicious. So the time in the woods was well spent. Now, predictably, this led to conflict over rights to use certain areas of the woods, or even the rights to use the woods at all. A good-sized oak grove could produce a fattened herd of pigs, so is it so hard to imagine that some people wouldn't want to share? I mean, if you had exclusive rights to that grove, you'd have a huge advantage over your competitors. Well, before long, there were woods that were locked down as private property, and then those same property owners, or as we call them today, job creators, would then charge you a fee to take your pigs into the woods that were, until recently, everyone's property. So they're making an income by doing nothing more than claiming private rights to public land and then charging the public a fee for it. That's a hell of a job if you can get it. And speaking of money, let's talk value. We know that some sources have placed the value of a sheep and a pig at the same level, but Athelstan's laws valued a pig at half a cow, which is significantly more than a sheep. So as with most things, it really depended on the market that you're in. It was all just basic supply and demand stuff. And consequently, it's very hard for us to pin down an average cost for a pig as it relates to a sheep or a cow or a goat. But I know what you're wondering about, though. What incredible medicinal qualities does my bacon breakfast carry with it? Well, the grease from pigs was used for a number of ointments, and fresh pork and vegetables in a broth were supposedly good for the blood. Sounds like a good dinner to me. However, not for pregnant women. Much like with ale, in Anglo-Saxon England, pregnant women weren't allowed to eat pork either. So no bacon or ale for the moms. Now pig hoofs and bladders also appear in cures, but I think I'll stick to my tasty soup and bacon. It's good for the blood after all. Now the last thing on our list of Anglo-Saxon farm life is poultry. And as far as we can tell, this made up a very small portion of the diet. But it was there. And chickens and geese appear in early food rent, so we can be pretty sure that they were present from the early migratory period. But here's something that will blow your mind. That is, unless you love chicken. If that's the case, then it'll just make perfect sense. Poultry wasn't the cheap dining option that it is today. KFC wouldn't be able to operate in Anglo-Saxon times and be able to keep their prices at the same level. That's because poultry was generally a prestige dish. I suppose that makes sense, since birds generally don't provide much meat, and they also don't want to stick around when you get that hungry look in your eye. So yeah, that chicken dish that you skipped in favor of steak on your anniversary? In Anglo-Saxon times, that would have been a rather odd choice. And actually, the prestige nature makes even more sense when it comes to geese. Geese are scarce, they're hard to keep, and they're dangerous. Don't scoff. Have you ever gotten too close to a goose at the park? If you had, you wouldn't be rolling your eyes. Geese are mean. One of my favorite memories from when I lived in Seattle was when I was walking through our local park. There was a jogger running by the lake. The thing that caught my attention was that he wasn't jogging like most people do. The steady movements, eyes straight forward. This guy wasn't doing that. He was sprinting wildly and hot on his tail was an incredibly angry, honking goose. Never seen anyone run so fast in all my life. So if you learn one thing from this episode, I hope it's this. Don't f 
with geese. Now as for ducks in the Dark Ages, it doesn't seem like there was any large-scale operation for ducks at this point. It was pretty much just hens and geese. Okay, so let's assume that you're wealthy enough to have poultry of some sort. The smart thing to do would be to keep them alive and fed and then harvest the eggs, right? Well, we're pretty sure that that's what people did. But the archaeological record is a little sketchy on numbers, but we can be fairly certain that eggs were some sort of component in the Anglo-Saxon diet. How much they factored in, though, is a little hard to say, but they do appear in later recipes. So there you have it. Dark Ages Barbecue. It had a lot of the same flavors that we enjoy today, if you could afford it. Okay, so we've spoken about farm life, but that isn't the only way that food can get on the table. So this episode is dedicated to all the food that was left out. It's dedicated to where the wild things are. So there's plenty of tasty wild things, if you know where to look. And from the record, it seems that the Anglo-Saxons had a vague idea of where to look, primarily in the woods. We have records of Anglo-Saxons regularly eating boar, hare, and deer. And if we look at what was prescribed in their medicinal cures, we also see references to the flesh of bears, badgers, foxes, and wolves. But they weren't really on the regular diet. And the issue of bear meat not being part of a regular diet shouldn't be too surprising. They're big and they tend to fight back. And the record from later ages indicates that bear hunting was actually something of a heroic activity, so it's unlikely that this would have been regularly eaten and that the meat was probably seen as having a very powerful medicinal effect as a result because it was just so hard to get your hands on. And the records of bear bones are actually pretty rare as well, so that would support that position. Now as for badgers, badger meat was seen as universally good for you in some records. And actually, that seems to indicate that it was a desired food. Though badgers are pretty mean, so it was probably a dish for special occasions. As for foxes and wolves, the use of their meat would make sense, since fox and wolf pelts were used by the Anglo-Saxons. And in general, these were not years in which the people would want to let food go to waste. But here's the interesting thing. Unlike badger, references to fox and wolf meat are entirely medicinal. As far as we can tell, no one was saying, hey Hrothgar, toss another wolf burger on the grill. It makes you wonder if this was a taste thing or if it was a specific food taboo, since they were definitely hunting the animals and some classes of society were even eating offal, so it seems odd that they wouldn't use the meat unless someone had a specific ailment. But there you have it. They just weren't eaten as part of the meal, typically. As far as we can tell, they were just medicinal in use. But those were the big medicinal animals that weren't being used regularly in meals. By and large, the big game animals, like I said, were boars, hare, and deer. At least as far as we can tell. And considering the fact that at this point in history, pigs and wild boars were actually remarkably similar, well, the hunting of wild boar shouldn't be seen as too shocking. They weren't that different. And the way wild boars were used could have been rather similar to the way pigs were used. Only that these ones wouldn't have been kept, of course, because they were wild. And we've found plenty of sites that have boar or pig bones in them. Though because those two species are so similar, it's often hard to distinguish them. So it might be one, it might be the other. It could be both, we just don't know. And on a foodie level, if you're wondering what wild boar meat tastes like, it's basically like a gamey pork. It's not too shabby, and if you decide to have a wild boar burger, try it with horseradish. It's pretty great that way. 
Now, what about the hairs? We talked about hairs. What about the hairs? Well, we've got hair bones all over the place. So when taken in combination with written references from later dates, we can be pretty sure that they were eaten as part of a regular diet. If you could catch them, of course. But the big one I want to talk about today is deer. Deer bones are plentiful from this period in time. It seems that everyone loved venison. And there was what appears to be a marked increase in the consumption of venison immediately following the withdrawal of Rome. That makes sense, I suppose. Society was starting to break down, and it's harder to get things to and from market, and then you have issues with raiders and bandits and, of course, Saxons and Picts and the Irish. Well, in that situation, it's quite likely that you would have lost your pigs, your chickens, your cattle, and when the Saxons showed up on your doorstep, you probably legged it so you also lost your fields, and you just counted yourself lucky to be able to disappear into the woods and the hills and survive just weather the storm. And in that situation, foraging and hunting deer might have been all you could do in order to keep your family fed during those turbulent times. And that taste for deer, or maybe that necessity, seems to have continued for a while. But here's the interesting thing about venison. It had a dual nature that depended on where you were from. Some regions had relatively small quantities of deer bones that had been found, while others had rather plentiful finds. So what does this mean? Well, it's honestly hard to say. If you had a lot of deer bones, it could indicate that this was a place where the wealthy and the powerful congregated, since venison was sometimes referred to as a meat for the upper class. But it also might indicate that this was a deeply impoverished location that had been raided to the point of subsistence living, and so the survivors had no choice other than to hunt for deer in order to keep food on the table. This is an incredibly uncertain period in history for us. Now, as for the actual hunting of the deer, the first question that you should probably be asking is who owns the deer? Well, like with most things, that's kind of hard to say, and it really depends on the period of time that we're talking about. At some point before the Norman Conquest, sections of lands were being cordoned off and established as deer parks. For example, there were laws in Wales that made it illegal to steal a deer from a deer park. Well, that indicates that, much like the fee-based woods that were used for fattening up the pigs, there were also areas of land where the deer were considered the property of that particular landowner. And we have references that seem to indicate that many English wooded areas were apportioned out by the 9th century, which would have restricted the hunting of larger games such as deer to only those who could acquire the rights to do so. So in general, who owned the deer? Well, in the later years, whoever owned the land... Or maybe it was just the king. It really depends. Now, why did that change come about? Well, this apportioning might have started to try and mitigate the damage that the deer were doing to crops, since they could just wander in and start chowing down. So if you had an enclosure that you drove the deer into, that would hopefully keep them from eating all your turnips, and it would also provide for a fairly easy way for you to hunt and get venison. The problem with that theory, of course, is that it would be much easier to build a wall around your farm than it would be to build a wall around a wooded area to house a bunch of deer. Now, it might have been because during the early migration period, there was widespread depopulation, and thus the hunting of lands opened up, and soon most anyone could hunt, and it remained unregulated. And then as populations grew and settlements expanded, it became clear that hunting needed to be regulated as the available hunting land decreased. It's possible, though the trouble with that is that the laws appear to be focused more on property than wildlife management. 
Now, it also could be that as populations grew, certain people recognized that their favorite hobby of hunting was getting kind of crowded, and they had the perfect patch of ground that they loved to hunt in, and they got tired of all their neighbors coming in and killing the game that they were stalking. Basically, they might have just been feeling a little bit claustrophobic and possibly greedy. That's also possible. And for my money, I'm going with the gimme it, it's mine theory. But really, we don't know exactly why this came about. But we do know that by the 9th century, we had areas being portioned off, and we have references to deer parks and the like. But the interesting part about all this is, like I said, these references predate the Norman Conquest. Earlier assumptions had been that the Normans came in, took the public land, made it theirs, and told everybody, no, you can't hunt anymore, and thus you had the establishment of hunting as a noble pursuit. And there is a great deal of truth in that, but the fact that deer parks were established before William invaded and that the land had already been chopped up tells us that things weren't as egalitarian as we might want to believe, and that when William invaded, areas were already getting kind of chopped up when it came to hunting in Britain. But that being said, we don't know exactly when the deer parks first established, nor do we know how prevalent they were in those early days. And as a counterexample, there are some indications that some hunting grounds were held by the community. So like with many things, this wasn't uniform, and rather it was more of a case-by-case matter. But in the end, it seems that hunting was a pretty common thing, regardless of whether it was on public land, land you had to pay a fee to enter, or even on land you had to sneak onto. And the tools of the trade were widely varied. Anyone could pick up a stone and hurl it, but that was pretty much only useful if you were trying to get a bird or some other small animal that was nearby. And even then, it was only viable if you had great aim and a strong throw. If you throw a stone at a badger, you'll just piss it off. And you only make the mistake of throwing a stone at a bear once. So what else was there? Well, there's the bow and arrow, of course. But the problem with that is it's not cheap or easy, so only trained hunters with the income to be able to afford a good bow and arrow would have been using that method. However, a good bowman would have been pretty efficient in the woods. Snares and pit traps were also useful for catching smaller creatures. But if you wanted to face off with something larger, like a deer or a boar or even a bear, you'd probably need a spear. It seems that the possession of hunting spears was actually pretty common, We see spearheads in a large number of graves for men, so this was probably the weapon of choice. And its presence in male graves also indicates that at least this form of hunting was primarily done by men. Now nets were also being used and were actually referenced by Aelfric. And finally, we've seen evidence of hunting dogs who would have assisted the hunters in tracking down and capturing prey. And the neat thing about hunting dogs is that dogs are scavengers. They can live just fine on scraps. So most households, unless they were in dire situations, could have supported at least one dog to help out with the hunting. Of course, this dog would need to be more mobile and effective than Kerouac, but there you have it. Speaking of Kerouac, I've responded to requests from listeners, and now there's a photo of him on the About the Podcast page on our website, in case you're wondering what my mangled little pooch looks like. All right, back to hunting. So basically, many of the methods of hunting hadn't changed tremendously over their prehistoric ancestors. The equipment would have had an upgrade, but by and large, things remained the same. It's probably because they were kind of effective. Now what about birds? So far, we've been talking about land-based animals, but what else would these people have been hunting? Well, we see references to medicinal benefits, or just the eating, of pigeons, starlings, sand martins, web-footed birds, so long as they're salted first, and a variety of other birds. 
and maybe even pheasants were present during this period. We found a wide variety of wild bird bones at various dig sites as well, which suggests that these people might have eaten whatever they could catch. Aelfrig indicates that they used nets, snares, whistling, I'm not sure how that works, hawking, trapping, and even using lime, which again, I'm really not sure how that works. But hawking sounds particularly exciting, and it has been present in England since at least the early 700s, and actually it was also present in Wales, though it appears that it was mostly an aristocratic venture and not something that was widely available or utilized. In fact, we can even assume that it was seen as decadent, since Boniface felt that monks shouldn't be allowed to hunt or go hawking. But it still sounds pretty cool. Ultimately though, traps and nets were probably the tools of the common person, and actually were probably the most effective, though they certainly weren't as stylish as hawking or falconing. And that's not just my modern bias playing into it, actually to be a king's falconer was a position of high honor in both the English and the Welsh courts. In Wales, he actually ranked higher than the huntsman. And I suppose this makes sense when you consider that a hawk could get prized in rare dishes that most hunters couldn't, such as a crane or a heron. Now it's true that if you were a gifted commoner, you probably could capture and train a hawk to assist in your hunting. And it would have been cost effective since the birds could largely feed themselves all throughout the year. But by and large, this method of hunting seems to have been something only for the aristocrats. Anyway, hawking, falconing, using nets, using hunting spears, regardless of what you're using, the picture we're getting here is that there's a good chance that unless there was a food taboo or a wear guild assigned, if something moved, there probably would be someone willing to eat it. We're an omnivorous species after all. So we're seeing a lot of different kinds of animals being hunted. Now as for where this hunting would take place, well, you could always hunt on your own land. But that wasn't necessarily a great option, since the wildlife was probably smart enough to avoid your village, and your neighbors had already probably caught the one deer that was stupid enough to come exploring. And something to keep in mind about England at this point in time is that it wasn't tremendously wooded. There weren't the ancient forests of the prehistoric times. The woods did make a rebound following the retreat of Rome, of course, but it wasn't like the entire country became a forest immediately. And as Anglo-Saxon England began to be established, what little gains the forests made were soon pushed back. So hunting wasn't always the easiest thing to do because you didn't necessarily have a wood right there. I mean, there was always the land between claimed lands, the thickets and hedgerows, or the hills that weren't easily cultivated and thus were left fallow, and by and large, the hunting, at least for the small animals, would have occurred there or wherever it could. But as for the larger game, the animals that traditionally inhabit the forests, well, that was a little bit more tricky. Even if there wasn't an ownership issue, your village might be as much of a day's journey from the nearest forest. And that would make hunting very difficult, and actually a risky venture. And even if you could manage to bring down a large game animal, preserving it and getting it home safely would have been a huge pain in the ass. This, combined with the issue of ownership of the woods, appears to have led to professional hunters. And to be a king's huntsman was to hold a significant place of honor in England. In Wales, it was also an honor, but it was a lesser one. You weren't as good as a falconer. Interestingly, the English huntsman traveled separately from the king, though I suppose this might make sense since he needed to go wherever the game is. We're not sure of exactly how this worked, whether he sent his catch to court, or whether he traveled in advance of court in order to ensure that there was always game on the table for when the king arrived, but whatever the case, we know that the English landowners were rather grumpy at the fact that they had to feed the huntsmen, and their horses, and the dogs, 
and everything else when they arrived. Now, of course, it wasn't just the huntsmen who did the hunting, but it was also the aristocracy. Alfred the Great, Harold I, and even Edward the Confessor were known for their love of hunting. This was something that the English aristocracy did long before the arrival of the Normans, and I suppose that makes sense. When you consider the apportioning of land in the later Anglo-Saxon eras, the resources needed to adequately hunt, such as the dogs, the weapons, etc., and of course the time required to get to the good hunting grounds, this was not an activity for a family that was living hand-to-mouth. Not unless they were starving and had no other option but to forage and hunt to put food on the table. Now I should point something out though. While the hunting lands might have been restricted, hunting for the lower classes would have been better during the Anglo-Saxon period than during the Norman period. The Anglo-Saxon guild penalties weren't as stringent as the Normans. And this also extends into the Welsh territories as well. Under Welsh laws, if you hunted a deer on someone else's land, you would owe the owner the hind quarter of the animal, but you could keep the rest. That's really not that bad. Conversely, William the Conqueror stated that anyone who hunted wild boar should have his eyes put out. He wasn't messing around. And the Normans also maimed Anglo-Saxon hunting dogs to prevent their use during that same period. They would actually go and just cripple their front paws. Hunting was now to be an exclusively Norman activity. And apparently the Normans were also going to be exclusively but that's getting ahead of ourselves. The point is that while the Anglo-Saxon period did have land ownership and rights restrictions, and consequently we shouldn't look at it as some sort of golden age for personal rights, when we look at it in comparison with what followed, the Anglo-Saxons were downright cuddly. Now, as we've been talking about the restriction of rights, and typically the Anglo-Saxons or the Normans have been taking a beating and look pretty villainous, not without earning it, of course, but there's one area where the Welsh were leading the charge for being possessive and greedy, and it was in the area of fishing. It seems that as early as the 500s, there are references to ownership of fishing spots, and later there would actually be codified laws on how to penalize someone for fishing on your land. But in general during the Dark Ages, if you're too poor or low class to be able to find a spot to hunt, and you were near a major body of water, you could probably try your hand at fishing. All you needed was a stick, some string, and a hook. And we're sure that this method was used by at least the late Anglo-Saxon period. Also, fishing in the ocean was fair game for everybody. No one owned the ocean. And actually, under some laws, if you used a line and pole, you were exempt from the fishing laws even if you were on someone else's land. So fishing was kind of a people's sport, at least if you're using a line and a pole. Now you could also use a trident, which has the advantage of making you look either like the most badass person in the world as you're stood up there hurling your trident into the water, but it also carries with it the disadvantage of making you look like the most inept person in the world as you're repeatedly stabbing the water and getting nothing, and it also doesn't carry the legal immunity that the fishing pole does. You might also try stationary nets if you're near a place where the fish would regularly pass through and direct the fish closer to shore so you could harvest them that way. In that situation, you might actually have some luck with your trident. And of course, if you're a professional fisherman, you could have also gone out in boats and used nets and other tools to catch the fish. Now the presence of fish in food rents suggests that they were pretty common in the regions of the island that could support it. But they were also present at feasts, and the monasteries would sometimes receive large numbers of them for their order. And they also feature fairly heavily in Christian miracles from the era, so it seems that they are also seen in a pretty positive light. The point is that by the end of the Anglo-Saxon period, fish were pretty common. 
Actually, there are arguments that whales and porpoises might have even been hunted for food. And also, shellfish were probably being eaten by the coastal English and Welsh. Perhaps in large quantities, since they didn't have the status that fish did, and therefore they would have been cheaper for the common people to eat, and there would have been so much competition. So in general, there was probably a fair amount of wild fish in their diet. Now, no discussion of wild things of Dark Age Britain would be complete without discussing bees. Honey was a common sweetener from this era, after all. And fun fact here, beekeeping stretches back to the Roman times. But early in the Anglo-Saxon period, it seems that beekeeping wasn't practiced. We can guess that because in Anglo-Saxon England, anyone who finds honey, at least in the early era, gets to keep it. Well, if people were professionally keeping bees at that point, you're not going to have a finder's keeper's rule, are you? Otherwise, those poor beekeepers would be constantly under siege by both the bees and their neighbors. So we can be pretty sure that they weren't keeping bees in the early period. But by the late Anglo-Saxon period, things had changed, and it seems that by that point, they'd worked it out and were now keeping bees domestically. And you might be wondering how on earth one keeps bees, especially in that period. Well, very carefully, I would imagine. The most interesting thing I learned while looking into this is the fact that bees don't leave after you harvest the honey. They just kind of shrug their thoraxes and just go right back to making more honey. They tend to just follow around the queen. Now, to begin with, back when they were harvesting wild honey, what they probably did was they cut a hole into an old tree trunk where the swarm was and just harvested right through there, sort of like a window into the hive. And this method would actually continue even after the bees have become domesticated because there still were wild swarms in the forest that could be harvested like this. The wild swarms never really went away. But over time, some industrious people would have started making wicker hives and then would have relocated the bees to those hives. This would make it easier for the beekeeper to exert ownership over the hive and manage it. And actually, this had a beneficial aspect for the bees in a kind of odd way. First, it prevented over-harvesting, but second, the beekeeper had a vested interest in keeping the bees alive and healthy. So in a bad year or in a tough season, he or she could provide the bees with honey syrup to get them through the rough patch. Now to get the honey, they would cut a portion of the comb and let it drip into a container. This is called run honey, and it was probably the most valued kind of honey. It still is today. They would also probably crush the comb and sieve it in order to get the last bits of honey out. And this was probably the less desirable honey. And as we talked about earlier, then they'd chuck those crushed honeycombs into a vat of water and they'd try and make mead out of it. But honey wasn't just for alcohol, it was also a common sweetener. And it also featured in food rent. And by the late Anglo-Saxon era and early Norman period, beekeeping was actually quite common. Typically, it was more likely to take place in the west than the east, but it was fairly prevalent in general. Also, wooded areas typically had wild swarms in them, like I said. Interestingly, by the time of Alfred, the theft of a swarm was seen as a crime on the same magnitude as the theft of a stud horse. The question is, of course, how do you prove the theft of a swarm? One swarm looks very much like another. But what this law tells us is that bees were big business. And actually, along with that, there were a number of charms and superstitions in play to prevent the loss of the swarm and keep them safe and ensure a good harvest, yada, yada, yada. But these laws and the presence of the charms might also be telling us something else. It might indicate that the production of honey couldn't keep pace with its demand, and therefore it was at a premium. And that would be in keeping with the heroic nature of mead. Mead was seen as a warrior's drink. It was a drink for the middle to upper classes. So maybe everyone wanted honey, but only the upper echelon could afford it. 
And that might explain why people would risk dealing with an enraged wild swarm by collecting honey in the woods. But the Anglo-Saxon sweet tooth could not be denied, nor could the Welsh sweet tooth for that matter. So we see plenty of written records indicating that honey and beekeeping were fairly widespread in this era. So now that we've talked about what people ate, what about what they refused to eat? What about the food taboos? You can also learn about a people by what they shun, after all. Well, it turns out that the Anglo-Saxons weren't so different from us. They weren't fans of eating people, good news for the local Britons. And they also found eating dogs, cats, hawks, rats, and other vermin to be rather disgusting. They weren't fans of eating animals that had dropped dead or had been killed by other animals. What we're talking about here is essentially the Dark Age equivalent of eating roadkill. We find it gross now, and we found it gross then too. And as we discussed earlier, pregnant women had food bans regarding things such as alcohol. So really, when it comes to food taboos, there's nothing too surprising here. Now things got a little more interesting when the church became fully established in Britain. For example, it seems that the eating of horse was outlawed as it was seen as a pagan practice since horse was closely tied to Woden. And of course, there were also a variety of outlawed foods for various holy days. But in general, things really haven't changed too much, and ultimately, these people are much more familiar than we might have imagined, at least when it comes to what they're eating on a daily basis. All right, if you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me at thebritishhistorypodcast at gmail.com. You can also join the conversation over at Facebook. We're at facebook.com slash britishhistory. And you can also follow us on Twitter. To find us on Twitter, just look for at britishpodcast. And of course, you can also join us over at the forums. The forums can be reached through our website, thebritishhistorypodcast.com. Just click the Get Involved button and follow the link to the forums. All right, thanks for listening.